the cry of dereliction. It is perhaps the most famous and certainly the most searing of all Jesus' last words from the cross, a cry of abandonment, a cry of loneliness, a cry of utter desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We sense this is as bad as it gets for Jesus or for anyone, but what do these words mean? How can God abandon God? What was happening in this moment of Jesus' agony and what might it mean for us yet today? On this Groundwork program, we explore this most arresting cry from our Lord. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And uh, we are now, Dave, on program number four of a seven-part series on the seven last words from the cross. Uh, A good thing to consider at any time, but certainly this makes for a good Lenten meditation during the season of Lent as we move up toward the time of Good Friday and uh, Holy Saturday and ultimately of Easter itself. So we've looked at uh, three sayings so far. The first one, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A second one where he takes care of his mother and commends her to uh, the care of his disciple John, son, your mother, mother, your son. Uh, And then we also looked at the response of Jesus to the thief who asked to be remembered in his kingdom. And Jesus said, surely I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And now we are up to this one that in the intro we said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the one word from the cross, which has a clear biblical echo. Right, and it's also maybe at the heart of what's happening on Golgotha. One of the things we said at the outset of this series is the cross is the central truth of the gospel. It's the heart of the Christian faith. What Jesus did in dying on the cross is everything for us as Christians. Mm -hmm. And we said that in exploring these seven words, we'd like to kind of unpack the meaning of that. And with the word that we come to today, we come to the heart of the meaning of Jesus' death. I mean, you know, the first word, Father, forgive them, that's a great example for us to follow. That's amazing. Jesus commending his mother, that's a very human thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sees even the lonely and the uh, needy. And then last week uh, in the last program with the word on uh, paradise, you'll be with me, he expresses this comfort, this hope of heaven. All we have to do is turn to him, and he promises that to us. But today we come really to grapple with the theology of the cross. Right, and Jesus now is, uh, as his agony is increasing, he now feels abandoned by God. And the thing he says is uh, very similar to, and probably is a direct quote from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament in the Bible. It begins this way, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. So those are the first two verses of Psalm 22. And the first one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is word for word what Jesus said. Yeah, exactly. And actually, if you go a little bit further into the psalm, there are verses there that describe, Mm -hmm. uh, they seem to be speaking specifically about his physical suffering, about the scourging. And and, uh, count my bones and they divide up my garments. And, uh, you know, they're laughing at me there. The dogs are are nipping at me. So the the mockery, all all the things that he experienced on the cross, but this word of abandonment of God forsakenness, we call it the cry of dereliction. 
That's really puzzled theologians and uh, scholars and ordinary Christian believers for a long, long time because it just seems so drastic, so radical that Jesus would feel this abandonment. Some people have sought ways around it to kind of soften it. Yeah, and one of the ways they do that is by pointing out the fact that, okay, if Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, that was sort of a secret code, a secret symbol Jesus was sending that he really wasn't that abandoned after all because, like many Psalms of Lament, Psalm 22 ends on a more positive note. Uh, So here's from near the end of Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, and so forth and so on. So Psalm 22 ends on an upbeat note of God's having come back. And some people say, see, by quoting the first verse, Jesus is saying, it's not so bad. I'm not really abandoned after all. Psalm 22 ends well. I'm fine. But I think that's wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> to, to I do too. Bluntly. I, I agree with you. It's rather dramatic. Uh, the very last verses of Psalm 22 go like this. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. Speaking of, apparently of God, mm-hmm. he has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. So there's this almost note of triumph, and that must be what Jesus is really saying. But I'm with you, Scott. I I don't think if he meant us to think about the end of the psalm, he would have quoted the beginning. Right. You know, that's a little tricky game to play, psychologizing Jesus. Right. And as, anyway, as my friend of the Bible commentator, Dale Bruner, said, people don't do memory work from a cross. Uh, Jesus wasn't trying to help people do a Bible study here by invoking Psalm 22. Right. This is what he felt. Now, the words of Psalm 22, verse 1, came readily to his lips to describe his experience at that moment, but that was the experience. And we're going to talk in the next segment more about how could that be? Right. That is actually what he felt. He was not just kind of uh, faking it when he said he felt abandoned by God. He did. Right. There is another way that uh, some people have suggested to kind of soften this, and they'll say, well, this is what Jesus said, and yes, he was quoting the psalm, he was taking that verse, but it, he was describing his feelings. He wasn't necessarily mm, describing right. the truth or the fact of the matter. He was saying he felt abandoned by God, just as we often feel abandoned by God, and we often ask the question, why, God, why have you done this? Why have you allowed this? You seem so far away. Jesus is just going through that same human experience of lament and despair and and feeling God forsaken, but it's not true. Yeah. It's not really true. I don't buy that one either. No, that's just not the depth of his experience well, and b- Besides, we're psychologizing Jesus. How do right. we know what was going yeah, on? exactly. We're, we're simply trying to identify ourselves right. with him let's in go this with, case. Let's go with what he said, not yeah. what we think he was feeling. Exactly. Um, we have his words. And, and we'll talk about that in the next segment. But just as we close out this first part of the program, Dave, it's interesting to me, though, that at this moment of agony, still the words of Scripture came to him, and a fitting word of Scripture came to him, which is evidence that Jesus had spent his whole life, on the human level now, of course, uh, as the human being, he had spent his life marinating in the Scriptures. He was steeped in Scripture. He knew Scripture by heart. And I think we've all seen people at the end of their lives sometimes with the same thing, how readily the old hymns, how readily Psalm 23 or Amazing Grace come to the lips of people in their final moments, even sometimes 
people whose dementia has robbed them of so many memories. Right. But you start singing Amazing Grace and they sing with you. Yeah, joining right in. So we're agreed, Scott and I, that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He was saying the simple truth that in some inexplicable, unfathomable way, God had turned away from him and cut off his life from Jesus. And we're going to begin to try to plumb the depths of that truth in just a moment. How do you handle difficulties in life? Do you get angry? Do you worry that you did something wrong to deserve it? Or maybe you're just tired of the struggle. In the Bible, many of God's people faced pain and suffering. Jesus himself endured ultimate suffering for our sake so that we can be made right with God. What can studying their struggles teach us about faithfully following Christ? Join today in March for a series of devotions titled Struggling and Growing in Faith. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And Dave, let's go right to the passage now. Of, we're going to go to Mark 15. This saying is in both Matthew and Mark. Mm-hmm. We'll go with the Mark version here. So let's hear from Mark 15, where this last word of Jesus from the cross that we're looking at occurs. So Mark relates that at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon... Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So that uh, holy moment when Jesus breathes his last with a loud cry, We've said several times in the course of this series that we're fitting the words together, sort of like a puzzle, by putting all four gospel accounts. So John has three, Luke has three different ones, Matthew and Mark just have this one central word, the fourth word from the cross, the cry of dereliction. And it's one of those instances which are dotted here and there through the scripture where the gospel writers who are writing in Greek right. preserve the sound of the original words that right. were spoken, and, and in this case, the Hebrew of Hebrew Jesus. words. We think Jesus and the disciples that by this time in history were speaking Aramaic, which is a, a version of Hebrew, but but quite quite a bit different. But this is actually Hebrew. Kind of the common language of right. that part of the world, right. not just in Israel, but all over. Right, and so this is the Hebrew that Psalm 22 would have been written in, in the original Old Testament, which was all in Hebrew. Uh, but unfortunately, most of the people standing by the cross weren't up on their Hebrew. Uh, maybe they knew Aramaic, and uh, maybe they knew uh, Latin or something, yeah. but uh, they didn't know uh, Hebrew very well. So when they hear Eloi, 
they hear Elijah. Now, Eloi means God, but right. my God, actually. But they thought he was calling Elijah. They thought Jesus was getting delirious, thought maybe Elijah would come and take him off the cross. So they give him some wine vinegar, which was kind of an anesthetic huh. to keep him going a little longer, yeah. to keep the show going. This is funny. Uh, isn't this funny? Now he thinks Elijah can take him down. Let's see. Let's wait and see. But he wasn't calling Elijah. He was calling out to his God, yeah. and they just misunderstood the Hebrew. Well, by this time, too, Jesus has been hanging there for at least three hours, yep. these these terrible three hours of darkness. His suffering has just about become humanly intolerable. As we're going to see in our next program, his lips are parched. His throat is like sandpaper. He can barely croak this out, so he's terribly thirsty. And as you said, Scott, the crowd, this is just more, you know, more fun for them. They've been mocking him. They maybe have gotten a little tired of that, of the humor. They're hanging around to see what happens. And, oh, wait, here's something new. Maybe maybe we're going to see some kind of supernatural miracle man show up, Elijah. So let's hang in there a little bit longer. And instead, they miss maybe the most profound thing that's ever happened in human history. Right, because we believe— as Christians, that from all eternity, God was triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that they have constantly been in complete union with each other. They are three different persons, but only together do they make up the one God. Their unity is so strong, their love, their fellowship. They've been one forever. And now it appears that as part of the payment for sin, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a bit, Now it appears that the Father, for sure, but probably the Holy Spirit, therefore, too, have somehow, who knows how, withdrawn from Jesus. He can't get access to them for the moment. They've turned their backs on him in a way that from all eternity had never happened within the Godhead, within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But now the Son can't get at the Father, can't get at the Spirit, and that is God-forsakenness. And indeed, the theologian John Calvin said that was hell. I was thinking as you were talking, Scott, of maybe a a small analogy. You know, in 1945, for the first time, scientists were able to split an atom. Mm -hmm. And they actually broke it apart, broke those almost indissoluble bonds between uh, electron and proton. And the result was an incredible explosion, a, a mushroom cloud. And in some... Uh, even more profound way, the indissoluble, indestructible bonds of love that join Father, Son, and Spirit into one God were broken, were ruptured on the cross as the Son of God bore the sin of the whole world. And you mentioned Calvin and and the Reformers' view that this was when Jesus literally tasted hell and tasted it for us because that's the definition of hell. Hell isn't about outer darkness or brimstone and fire and all of that. Uh, The great preacher and poet John Donne said, those things are tickling compared to the reality of hell. Hell is actually separation from God. God who is life, God who is love, God who is everything. And as many theologians have pointed out, the world's most hardened atheist today who wants nothing to do with God actually has no idea what that experience is like, because even an atheist still is living in God's world and could turn to God at a moment's notice. God is still there for even the atheist, but not in hell. You know, C.S. Lewis once said that God taught us to pray, Jesus taught us to pray, uh, your will be done, 
But a lot of people refuse to say that to God. So in the end, God will say to them, fine, your will be done then. You didn't want anything to do with me. You will never have anything more to do with me. And that is the experience of hell. And that is what Jesus did. So in the Apostles' Creed, according to the Reformers anyway, when we say the line, he descended into hell, Calvin says that was this moment on the cross, not a literal descent into a place, but the moment of being abandoned by Father and Spirit, which is sin's greatest and worst punishment. He felt it during those three hours of darkness, and maybe that's why the darkness descended, to kind of uh, indicate in some physical way as a sort of parable what Jesus was experiencing on the cross, not because of his own sin, but because of ours. And that's the depths of love uh, that we try to express in our own uh, stumbling and sometimes feeble way when we explain the basic truths of the gospel of Christ dying for us, Christ actually tasting hell for us as he hung there and, and cried out with that loud cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How God can forsake himself, how the Father and the Son can somehow be estranged, we don't understand. Yep. But we believe he did it and he experienced it and he did it for us right. so has, that we don't have right. to go through this. And in just a moment, let's think about that, uh, of what are the implications for our lives today that Jesus had this experience. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork. We're talking about the fourth word from the cross, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this word, we come really to the heart of the gospel, how Christ became for us sinners our substitute, our sacrifice, the one who tasted not just death, but even hell, even separation from God on our behalf so that we don't go through that ourselves. And interestingly, the pastor and theologian Fleming Rutledge uh, released a book uh, just recently about a year, year and a half ago called The Crucifixion. It's a masterful work. And she points to a very interesting verse from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul wrote something that has puzzled theologians for years. So here's 2 Corinthians 5, starting at the 18th verse, where Paul writes, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Fleming Rutledge points out, what does it mean that God made Jesus to be sin? Mm. How was Jesus made to be sin? Well, yeah, and certainly uh, what it means, I guess, at its simplest level, uh, if we can kind of reduce it to basics, is that he took our place. As sinners, we deserve that experience 
of being cut off from God. God had said so much comes together in the whole course of the Bible at this moment and becomes more understandable for us. For example, when Adam and Eve first sinned, God said to them, if you disobey me in the day that you eat that, you will die. Mm-hmm. And yet they didn't die, at least not literally, physically, but right. he was talking about a different kind of death, spiritual death, and leading ultimately to eternal death or eternal separation from God, eternally being cut off. And as Jesus experiences this in his infinite goodness and his deity, really, as God in the flesh, uh, somehow he makes an infinite satisfaction for that in our place and experiences on our behalf what we should have had. Right. So God made him to be sin. He made him to be us, <laughs> really. Right. Right? We just said that's sometimes called the substitutionary uh, aspect of the atonement. There are lots of different theories on how Jesus saved us in the atonement. I tend to think they're different aspects of the atonement, that right. they all have exactly. some truth A lot of it. ways we could talk about right. it. Right. Yeah. But the substitutionary one has been a leading one in history. He took our place. And that has, I mean, obviously, theologically and in terms of our very salvation, that has a lot of uh, a deep, deep, deep meaning. But I think practically, even for today, Dave, we can think about the fact that by taking our place in the experience of hell, as we were just saying uh, in the prior segment, by going to hell for us so we don't have to, we can be assured that we will never experience hell. We will never be truly abandoned by God. Jesus did that and had that experience for us. Yeah. That doesn't mean, though, that well, that that lament is still wrong, right? I mean, yeah, there are right, those yeah. seasons when we, we can feel still feel, feel something. Yeah, absolutely. But if I could just piggyback on that for a moment, I mean, ever since I was a child, you know, I, I was raised in the church and. Communion was always a big deal back then. You know, it happened four times a year. So pretty rare. It was always according to the liturgy, and the same words were always read. It was a it was a longer service, and I just think as an impressionable child, those words kind of stuck with me, and I I have never been able to forget the segment in our communion service where the minister said that he took upon himself our flesh and blood. Mm and fulfilled for us all obedience to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross, where he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's our word. And then it added this line, so that we might be accepted by God and never be forsaken by him. I just love that thought because he was forsaken for those moments on the cross that seemed like an eternity. Perhaps as an eternal being, they were an eternity in a sense for him. And so fulfilled for us that payment and we'll never be forsaken as right. a result. We will never be forsaken by God. We have our dark nights of the soul sometimes. We have seasons in our lives when we pray the Psalms of Lament, like Psalm 22. Uh, the Psalms of Lament are in the Bible as model prayers for us. So it's okay to tell God, you know, it feels like you're not here. It feels like you've uh, gone off duty. It feels like when I pray, you're not picking up the phone on your end of the conversation. We will feel that way at times. But the great assurance is it's not the ultimate truth. God is never going to abandon us, even when we feel abandoned for a season. And that is, Dave, as you said, because of what Jesus did. This is what being God's son means. And you know, in Mark's gospel, every time somebody identified Jesus as God's son, Jesus said, shh, yeah, right. don't, don't tell anybody, keep it secret. Scholars call it the messianic, messianic secret. secret. Uh, and they wonder, why is that? And probably yeah. the best reason is, 
because they wouldn't have understood what kind right. of Messiah they he was supposed to be. They would have jumped to the wrong conclusion. But there's only one person in Mark's gospel who says this is the Son of God and is not told to be quiet, and it's the soldier at the cross, and he's not told to be quiet because it's okay to say it. Now that you see what being God's Son means, the depths of agony, the depths of hell, when the soldier saw how he died, Mark says, he said, surely this was the Son of God, because now that Jesus has gone to the end, now we know what being the Son of God really means. Yeah, there's an old saying from the military, RHIP, rank hath its privileges, <laughs> and apparently the privilege of ultimate rank, being God, means uh, the privilege of lowering yourself and giving of yourself and even dying yourself. Can God die somehow? Yes, God did die. Can God go to hell? Can God abandon himself? Yes, somehow he did so that we could be saved. And that's wonderful good news for us. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks for joining our Groundwork Conversation. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast. We want to know how we can help you to dig deeper into the scriptures, so visit groundworkonline.com and tell us topics and passages you'd like to dig into on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob.